This is Hear Me Now, the preaching podcast. I'm Dr. John Nixon, Sr. According to Forbes magazine, there are 2,755 billionaires in the world. A list that grew in 2020 despite COVID-19. In other words, while the world economy was suffering, 493 new people became billionaires. That's one every 17 hours. And of those already in the Billionaires Club, 86% got richer in 2020 than they were in 2019. Jeff Bezos heads the list, Amazon. Elon Musk, Tesla is second. Bill Gates is four. All of them in the hundreds of billions. Taken together, the world's 2,755 billionaires are worth $13 trillion. If they were a country, they'd, be the, they'd have the third highest gross domestic product in the world. Those 2,000 people. It's hard to conceptualize a ridiculous number like a trillion. It's a million multiplied by a million. That's a one with 12 zeros. Try to visualize it this way. If you were to take a stack of $100 bills and stack them on top of each other, a stack of one trillion would reach 631 miles. And that's just one trillion. These are the heroes of our culture, the obscenely rich. They are the icons, the celebrities. We admire them, not for who they are, but for what they have. And we're proud if anybody from our group is among them. Anybody from our our culture, our country. How many women? Did Oprah make the list? Did Kim Kardashian? We admire them, some even worship them, and we're willing to overlook many indiscretions and unethical behavior, even bigotry and other flaws, if they have enough money. Money eclipses character in our culture. So we have to ask ourselves as Christians, Where do we stand in the cult of finance? How does money figure into our worldview, our value system, into our life goals, into the idea we have of our self-worth? Let me challenge us as we continue this sermon on the doctrine of stewardship, Jesus and our money. We listened last time to the passage in our step one of the story of the rich young man, or the rich young ruler as he's called, Mark ten seventeen to 27. This time, in our step two, we're going to look at treating the text, exegesis. We're going to focus on some of the big ideas, not necessarily every text. Starting with verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We noticed in our step one the excitement and the enthusiastic enthusiasm of this young man, uh, the high drama of the scene. He runs up, falls at Jesus' feet. But in the exegesis, we're pointing to something else. It focuses on this, this term here, what must I do? The question of the wealthy man and the way he puts it suggests a problem with legalism. He's asking Jesus how he can work his way to eternal life. He's expecting some kind of to-do list from Jesus. What must I do? Of course, this makes us wonder how he viewed commandment keeping. 
which he claimed he has done from childhood. If this is his understanding, maybe he's kept the commandments by the letter instead of by the Spirit. See, what must I do? A works righteousness view. Verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So now we get an idea of why Jesus confronted him in this way. The rich man doesn't realize he's talking to the answer to his question. He thought he was talking about a thing, doesn't know he's talking to the one. He thought he was talking to only a good teacher. He did not know what the disciples know. When Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus is going to give this rich young man a a chance to step up his belief to this level of saving faith. He doesn't know this yet. So he says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. He's trying to set his mind now on that higher plane. Start thinking about God, not just a good teacher. Okay, verse 19. You know the commandments, Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother, he's quoting the commandments. And now we understand, in view of the whole picture, why Christ points into the commandments in answer to his question about salvation. Jesus is sending him on a salvation journey, the same journey we all have to take. The first stop is the commandments. Until we find out we can't keep them, the law is spiritual. Which leads us to the second stop, Jesus, who alone has perfectly kept the commandments. The rich young man never makes it to the second leg of the journey because he's stuck on that first leg, commandment keeping. He thinks he's a commandment keeper when he's not. We know he's not because Jesus alone has perfectly kept the law. So he's stuck at the law, which is why he says, something's missing. What must I do? He's stuck at the law. Can't get any further. We can make an application right here as a preacher about those who are still focused on the law. It's a chance for us to bring that out right here. Okay, verse 20, Christ goes on. Uh, Here's the rich young man, teacher, I've kept all these since I was a boy. What he should have said is, I've been trying to keep all these since I was a boy, and I keep failing. If he understood the spirituality of the law, he would know this about himself. But he's not self-aware. He thinks he is a commandment keeper. Now, let me say something here. Spirituality of the law is a subject in itself that deserves a sermon of its own. But as I'm preaching this passage, I I have a chance to, to bring it up create interest in it, let my people know I'm going to come back to it so when I announce it, they'll come to church that day. It's an important topic. And I'm going to come back to it at some point, the spirituality of the law. That's that's another Christian doctrine. Okay, going on. Verse 21. Here's the key verse. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. We notice in step one that this is the critical passage, the one that presents the testing truth. We know it's the key text because this is the text in which Jesus offers himself. 
Christ-centered preaching always leads us to look for the place where Christ is at the forefront. We interpret the whole passage based on him. And here in this verse, he's offering himself. We can make a great application here for our listeners. The central truth here applies to all who desire salvation. It's revealed right here. It's the offer of exchange that Christ is making. Everything you have in exchange for me. Do you see it? The rich man comes to Christ because he knows something is lacking in his life. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't see the depth of his own need because his money stands in his way. He doesn't know he even has that kind of a need. What he thinks of as an advantage is actually the great disadvantage of his life. It's the deceitfulness of riches. Have you ever wondered why Jesus referred to it that way in Mark 4.19? Like no other idol... Money can deceive us because it is not evil in itself. In fact, it seems very good. It has the appearance even of virtue, which makes it dangerous. Others admire you for having money. The danger of pride is lurking. You can do good things with money, things that make you feel good about yourself. The danger of a false sense of security is present. It can set your heart on acquiring wealth to the neglect of spiritual things, the danger of falling in love with the world. 1 John 2.15 If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Money is a sneaky God. It worms its way into your heart and you don't even know it has taken the throne. It takes over the heart. And we fall into the deception of materialism defined as the tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values, materialism. That's the trap. The things of eternity are made subordinate to the things of the world. And that applies to every believer, wealthy or not. You can have five dollars to your name and still be materialistic. Someone who values the acquisition of things above everything else. Materialism. The rich young ruler is just an example of this value system taken to the extreme. But every lesser example presents the same peril. It's the spiritual power of money. It's ability to get into the heart and replace faith in God. That's how money is a spiritual power. So Jesus warns in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, heart follows treasure. If your treasure is material, that's where your heart will be. If it's spiritual, that's where your heart will be. So Christ says in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and money. You got to choose. Now in the text, money is capitalized. The KJV has it, you can't serve God and mammon. It's the same idea. Jesus is not talking about money in terms of dollar and cents. He's talking about money as a ruling power in the life, a God. You can't serve two gods. So Christ is asking the young man to remove one God from the throne and replace him, the only God who deserves to be on the throne. You got to get rid of the false God. So he says, sell all all your stuff. You can't have it hanging around. For the rich young man, this this can be accomplished in only one way. Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it away to the poor. Then come follow me. Exchange one God for the other. 
Maybe this could be a good sermon title. What do you think? Change of thrones? Take one God off the throne, put the other one. Every believer is challenged to search his life, find out what's on the throne. If God is not there, change thrones. Maybe that's a sermon title. How about this? Game of thrones. Is that taking it too far? Every person is in this game. Game of thrones. I don't know. Maybe that's taking it too far. You decide. Just an idea. I'm just throwing that out there. Okay, verse 22. uh, 22. Bible says, And the man's face fell, and he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Not because he didn't believe Jesus. Not because he didn't think his question was answered. Because he had great wealth. Walked away sad. Anything you possess that makes you walk away from Jesus is your Jesus. And here's the irony. The man thought he was a commandment keeper. All along he's an idolater. Doesn't even know it. He thinks he's a commandment keeper, yet he's walking away from the Lord of the commandments. He was an idolater. Again, the deceitfulness of money makes you self-deceived. You never realize the hold money may have on you until the Lord commands you to give it up. Not out of your abundance, not your discretionary funds, but when he asks you to give up your money at your own personal loss, sacrificial giving. That's when you find out how your heart may be attached to your thing. When Jesus comes, he doesn't want us to have any money left. Not in the bank, not in in the investment, in the markets, not tied up in our things. Our material things cannot be transferred to heaven. They have no value there. They only have value down here as they're used for God's kingdom. Not as an end in themselves, but as a means to an end, the end that God has in mind. That's where its value lies. After that, it has no value. So Christ wants us to be detached from it. Listen to this, early writings 56 and 57. Houses and lands will be of no value to the saints in the time of trouble. If they have property on the altar and earnestly inquire of God for duty, he will teach them when to dispose of these things. See, there's there's a time to sell off that God will show us. If our things are on the altar, that's the altar of sacrifice. Continuing. I also saw that God had not required all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time. But if they desired to be taught, he would teach them in a time of need when to sell and how much to sell. So we have to live detached. Christ is going to require us to sell it all at some point. Not all at the same time, but at some point, if our things are on the throne. So we have to live detached from things. It's not about how much you have. It's about how you live in relationship to what you have. The biblical principle of detachment. Here's a comment on it, a companion text, Philippians 4, 11 to 13. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. NLT says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of being content in every and in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is detachment. The key goal here is contentment. It means happiness and peace are unaffected by your material circumstances. Rich or poor, well-fed or hungry, it doesn't matter. It can't trouble me. It can't upset my world. Jesus is the only one I absolutely can't do without. 
Everything else can come or go. Just don't take away Jesus. That's living in contentment. And since Christ has promised to never leave us or forsake us, that means we can always be content. I can praise him at all times. Psalm 34, 1, one of my favorite verses. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Christ is trying to show the rich young man that his attachment to his things is his problem. He's not living in detachment. His money has a grip on him and it blinds him to spiritual values. So, sell your stuff. Get rid of it. And then... Come follow, in exchange, then come follow me. Walks away sad. Can't do it. Won't give it up. Goes home sad. Verse 23. Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. All the translations have it the same way. Some say the wealthy instead of the rich, but it's consistent. The Message Bible paraphrases, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? It's an unqualified statement. Christ doesn't say how hard it is for some of the rich. He says the rich. He's presenting the truth of how wealth is an obstacle to be overcome by the one who possesses it. Great wealth is a stumbling block. There's a principle of sanctification in it. It's this idea, spiritual life, always comes at the expense of natural life. These two are ever in opposition to each other. No one can serve two masters. James 4.4 presents the same idea even more starkly. It says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Not friend of the world in terms of someone who loves all people in the world. No, it's friend of the world in terms of someone who loves the things of the world. To love the things of the world, James 4.4 4 says, is to become an enemy of God. In all of his teaching, Christ promoted a spiritual agenda that came at the expense of the natural. His platform was non-political. My kingdom is not of this world. It was non-materialistic. The foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The things we have get in the way of the spiritual life. Spirituality comes at the expense of the natural. You know, I can, I can expand on that too. You know, that, um, that whole idea of the relationship between the natural and the spiritual. There's a whole theology there. Maybe I'll preach that one of these times. Okay, verse 24. Actually, 24 to 26. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? What's behind their thinking here? The Jews had a high regard for wealth, just like we do. They admired the rich for their possessions as a mark of success and luxury, but there was something more. Jewish morality equated wealth with righteousness. They believed the rich were rich because they were righteous. They deserved it. God rewarded them and their excellent character with cash. So they're entitled to money because, they're, because they have a high spirituality. That's like the prosperity gospel, right? Prosperity gospel says, As spiritual Israel, Christians are entitled to the things of this world. Indeed, it's a sign of their wealth, if, it's a sign of their faith if they possess them. 
we got to explore that sometime, the whole prosperity gospel thing. Verse 27, our last verse. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. This takes us back to our Philippians text, our companion text, where the Bible says, with God all things are possible. And it's interesting, when we quote this text, we often mean something we want, God can get for us because he believes in our dreams. With him all things are possible. While in context, the passage is saying the opposite. It's saying, with God, I can do without material things altogether. Christ said, with God, all things are possible. He's talking about possible not to be tied to wealth. With God, that's possible. Philippians 4 is saying it. Same thing, with God, all things are possible. Well, I got to come back to the whole prosperity gospel thing. Got to come back to the spirituality of the law thing. Those are two important things. And if anything today that we've talked about, it's, it's a complex subject. Anything today we've talked about you think needs further explanation, put it in the Facebook page or something. I'll see it, and I'll come back to this next time. It's a lot to, to digest in one sitting. And I'm going to have to come back to it at some point. I'm going to tie up now, though. It's not clear at first glance. You have to compare scripture with scripture. Then it becomes crystal clear. Let's think about that in terms of our own lives. Get ready to preach it. Until then, listener, be faithful. Keep humble.